Well, look at you all. This is awesome. Happy Resurrection Sunday, church family. He is risen. Uh, yeah, you know it. We're going to do that again because this is a day of joy and celebration. He is risen, church. My name is Brandon Ziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. And if you are with us, um, joining us for the first time, coming back together for the first time in a long time, we are honored and humbled to have you here with us. And for those of you still watching online, we are honored and humbled that you would let us into your home this morning. Um, our heartbeat is to be simply all about Jesus. He's the one that changes everything, and that's why we do all that we can to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. And as sweet and as exciting as it is to be together again, if you think about it, a year ago, I remember sitting in the chapel a year ago, freaking out, paranoid. I don't like cameras. Now, cameras and I, we finally got along. We have a mutual agreement now, but I remember going, this is the oddest Easter ever. But God is still in control. God is still over all. None of that has changed. Nothing has paused in terms of faith. And as exciting as it is to come together and to worship together again, we're not here because of that. We are here because Jesus changes everything. And it's not just some things. It's not just a little touch here and a dabble here. He literally changes everything. He's not a mystical figure that's been construed in the imaginations of some random people thousands of years ago. No, and Jesus isn't just a really good teacher who has some good morals and some good family values. If that was the case, why was he such a threat? Why is he still a threat today? History informs us. History tells us that Jesus indeed existed. Boots on the ground, flesh on bone. History informs us that Jesus was seen as a threat to, to the degree that the Roman Empire had to execute him in the most inhumane way. History also informs us that after three days after his death, something happened. Something so profound, so scandalous, so shocking that has forever changed history. Something new happened. Something happened that validates and vindicates everything that Jesus said about himself. It validates everything that he said about God. It validates everything that he said about the world, about you and me and our heart and condition before him. So let me just cut to the chase. If the resurrection is true, it's the beginning of something beautiful. It was the beginning of something radical, something so new, something altogether so different that it requires for you and for I and for all of humanity to no longer live the way we did, to put away the old, old behaviors, old habits, old ways of thinking and understanding and relating to each other, putting away old ways of how we think we know God of how we see God and how we think God interacts with us. And this is Easter morning. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 5, 
which will help us embrace and experience what Jesus' resurrection has accomplished. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And if not, that's okay. We're going to have it on the screen behind. Luke 5, and I'm going to start with verse 30. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, And they will fast in those days. Now, I know that you might be thinking, well, that's an odd passage for Easter. Yeah, you're right. It's not a traditional passage. But I come to believe that every word of God's word here, it has resurrection implications all over it. And especially in this teaching, there's something beautiful and profound that directly connects to the resurrection, which is why it is so important for us to understand this. In the context of this story, Jesus is interacting with people whom the religious elite and the groups of of religious leaders would not associate with, groups of people that they would consider to be kind of like the living dead. He's interacting with lepers and the paralytics and, and the sick and the poor and even like sinners like the tax collectors. And people are like going, who is this guy? And they're so intrigued by Jesus and what he's doing and what he's saying. It's almost as if their preconceived ideas and notions of who God is is being completely flipped upside down. His notoriety is getting out there that the Pharisees even had to come to investigate Jesus and even their presuppositions of how they think God should be. Jesus isn't fitting that mold. And so they're left with some questions. Some of them are feeling threatened. Some of them are upset. Some of them are hopeful that maybe Jesus truly is the Son of God, that maybe truly he is representing God. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because I want you to understand something about yourself this morning. Every single one of you, no matter where you are at on your faith journey, you've come into this morning, this Easter morning, with some preconceived notions of Christianity. You've come in this morning with presuppositions, how we think God acts, how we expect God to respond, how we think the economy God works. Some of us come with this idea of like, this is what church is. This is what Easter's all about. Regardless if you are a passionate follower of Jesus or if you're just an observer of Christianity, you all have them. We all have these ideas when we come to church, when we hear about the word of God, we have these ideas of this is what God is like. This is what Christianity is like. This is what is good. This is what is bad. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a church person. This is who Christianity is for. And this is who Christianity is not for. Well, Jesus came to blow up everybody's preconceived notions of who God is. And that's really what Easter also does. Is it just completely obliterates our grid of thinking when it comes to God. And during this party... The Pharisees can't handle what Jesus is doing. 
So they begin to put their presuppositions and their ideas onto Jesus. And one of the guys asks Jesus a rather self-righteous comment because it flows out of his ideas of self-righteousness. And he says, Jesus, the disciples of John, they fast often and they're offering prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, they eat and drink. Now, a little bit of context here. Like we got to understand that there's nothing wrong with fasting. Fasting is totally okay. In fact, their law would even say like you should fast at least one time a year. And that was around the sacrifice for the atonement of sins. And it was also okay to fast when there's a sense of deep need, repentance, or if you're mourning. But these folks, the Pharisees, they took this concept of fasting and they ratcheted it up to a whole nother level. They began to abuse the practice. They turned it into something that it was never meant to be. They turned it into some sort of control mechanism where they thought like, hey God, look at me. Look how serious I take this. Woe is me. You now should notice me because I am super good. I mean, they took this to the extreme. They started to fast twice a week. Praise the Lord. That is not an obligation because I would fail, hands down. And they started to throw that onto other people. It became a religious burden on other people. And they used it as this opportunity to kind of put it on a show. They, They would look miserable. It'd be like those people who come to church and say, you can't smile in church. Like they wanted to look. They wanted recognition because that's what they thought it would achieve them. And you see, more than likely at this party when Jesus is at with Levi, the tax collector, and all these other sinners and all these other people, as Jesus and his disciples are feasting and celebrating, it was probably one of the days that they were fasting, and I got to guess that maybe they were jealous. But besides that, that's when they came and brought this question to Jesus. And I love what Jesus does here, is he completely blows the lid on their idea of what God should be and what God requires. And so Jesus responds, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Like, have you ever been to a wedding where it was so sad and so miserable? No feasting, no celebrating, no joy. The bride and groom were so mad that they were getting married that day. You ever been to a wedding like that? If you have, they shouldn't have gotten married. I mean, this is a rhetorical question to which they would have understood, like, of course not. They even understood culturally, they knew how to celebrate a wedding. It was a seven-day ordeal. They feasted and celebrated for seven days. In fact, that's where we even have a miracle of Jesus when he turned the water into wine. He goes on, he tells them, he's like, listen, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. The time of wedding and marriage is a beautiful time. It's a time of excitement and rejoicing and feasting and celebrating. It's a time of great joy. And Jesus is making a very bold claim here because Israel understood that God uh, described himself as the bridegroom in the nation of Israel as his bride. When Jesus is basically making this connection of saying, I'm the bridegroom, I'm here. I'm present in your midst. The bridegroom is here in your midst. It's time to celebrate. It's not a time to mourn. This is a time to rejoice because now is the favor of God. 
He has come to bring us into a relationship with him. This wedding feast was so full of joy, so full of life, to the degree that anyone who attended that wedding feast, that wedding ceremony for those seven days, they were relieved of certain religious observances like fasting, which would lessen their joy. A wedding is not the time to abstain from celebrating. It's the time to rejoice. It's a celebration of life. It's where two become one. There's so much imagery here that Jesus is sharing with us. This is what Jesus is all about. He's all about bringing life. He's all about bringing hope to those who have no life, to those who have no hope. He's about people. Those who are hopeless, who are deemed unworthy. Those who think they're even self-righteous that they can try somehow earn God's favor. Yes, he's even for them and wants them to see their heart and see God's heart. Jesus is in fact saying that his presence justifies a feast with all who would respond to his invitation. In fact, it would be impossible to fast or more during this time because it would be a tremendous insult to the bridegroom. So here's how this connects with Easter. The presence of Jesus justifies a continual joyful celebration. I don't think the church understands this. Because I think we're a little bit more like the Pharisees. We're like, shh, you can't smile at church, right, church? We should be the most joyful people all the time, regardless of the circumstances. And that's why Paul even said that, be joyful always. Nothing could ever separate us from the love of Christ. We can give thanks in all circumstances because God turns all things out for the good of those who love him because he conquered the grave. Nothing can ever separate you. We have a living hope. We should be the most joyful people in the world, regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of what's happening on the Capitol Hill, regardless of what's happening in the medical field, regardless of what's happening in academia. We have the greatest reason to be joyful because the bridegroom is in our presence continually. He made it very clear. He's like, listen, my disciples will mourn because the bridegroom will be taken away. And what he's saying there is he's giving a reference to what we call Good Friday. The time when Jesus was nailed to the cross for our sins. If Jesus didn't go to the cross to redeem us with his blood, there could be no wedding. It was there on the cross where Jesus extended to us the gift of his righteousness. There is no such thing as us ever being good enough to somehow earn God's favor. It's impossible. It was there on the cross where we were declared righteous before God's holiness. It was there on the cross where Jesus' death has become the propitiation 
the sole act that satisfies God's wrath so that we could be in a relationship with him. Yes, Jesus came. The bridegroom came to this world to give up his life as a ransom, a payment to free us from our sins. And three days later, their sorrow gave way to the joy of the resurrection. Imagine that moment when Peter and John and Mary Magdalene and all of them who ran to the tomb, not expecting Jesus to be alive. None of them expected that. To finally find out, imagine being Mary Magdalene and Jesus saying, Mary. Their sorrow gave way to joy, the joy of the resurrection, and eventually the joy of his ascension and the joy of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, which says he's in control. The joy of receiving the Holy Spirit, which tells us that he is forever with us, in us. The hope of glory, Christ in you. That's what's beautiful about this little teaching He's in fact telling us that those who receive this invitation to follow him, his invitation to come and be part of this wedding, will forever be in the presence of the bridegroom, Jesus. Which means we will live in the fullness of joy. Which means we will continually experience the fullness of life. And in this life, our strength will be his joy. If Jesus just died, friends, listen, if Jesus just died and his bones are still in the ground, if Jesus never resurrected, there can be and will be no perpetual or continuous joy in this life. There will be no joy in the Lord because he didn't come back from the grave. But because he did, the bridegroom is forever with us. And we, as the church, collectively and individually are his bride. That's why life is a celebration. So let me ask you this question. Think about your preconceived notions and your presuppositions of what you think about Easter and the resurrection and church and Christianity. Have you ever thought about Christianity through this lens? As a celebration of a marriage of the bridegroom and the bride. Have you ever described or heard described a relationship with God this way? What does this suggest about Jesus? Like how does God see our relationship and what does God want the context of our relationship to look like? I want you to meet dear friends of mine. I want you to meet this amazing couple, Brenda and Raymond lucky. I met them in 2017. I'm a new pastor in the church, and, and I remember meeting them. It was just sweet as can be, super encouraging. And I got the joy of hearing their story recently, a story of how Jesus relentlessly pursued their hearts and their lives, and how over many years, Jesus was after them, and how God turned their preconceived ideas and notions of God to, to discover the joy of the Lord. So friends, I want you to meet and hear this beautiful story of the Luckies. Hi, my name is Brenda. 
My name is Raymond. We are the Luckies. When we first met, I was in the military and a friend of mine uh, set me up on a blind date. It wasn't really love at first sight, but it didn't take long. We were 22 years old, thought we knew everything there was to know in life and got married and three months later, Uncle Sam sent him overseas to the Vietnam War for a year. We talked to each other two times during that year, and it was ham radio calls that one person would patch to another, to another, to another. So when we spoke to each other, there were like six or seven people on the phone with us. But when he came back, it was like we had to get to know each other all over again. And there were lots of times when it, it was really, really hard, and it would have been easy to say, I, I give up, but we made a vow before God, and I meant it when I said it. I was always brought up in the church, and I was baptized when I was 10, but looking back on it, I think it was more out of fear. There were a lot of activities in the church that kept me involved, and so God kept bringing me closer and closer. And then one day, I remember I was driving my car, I was at a stoplight, and I'm singing along with Cece Winans, I Surrender All. And it's like Christ just said to me, yeah, Brenda, but you know, you never really have. You really have never surrendered everything to me. And I just started weeping. I said, Lord, you're right. It was such a watershed moment for me. And Christ became not only important, he was the absolute center of everything in my life. And I so badly wanted to discuss it with my husband because I love him more than anyone, and I couldn't. To, to backtrack a little bit, I was brought up in a Catholic church, and, and I, didn't, I didn't like it. When I was two years old, I would be fussing around in church. My mom would take me out to the witch, literally the, the outhouse, and uh, give me a spanking. Two or three times a mass. Years later, I, I took my aunt to church, and, and the, the priest got up on the podium, and part of his sermon was, <laughs> you won't believe it. If you leave Mass early, you are going to hell, and there's nothing I can do about it. So <clears throat> uh, that, was the, that was the final straw. When I left home, I stopped going to church. People would ask me, why doesn't your husband come to church with you? And I'd say, well, he's not really a believer right now. And I said, but he's going to be. I know he's going to be. And I just hope God lets me live long enough to see it. I will be very truthful saying that there were times when I just wanted to give up praying. There were times when I just wanted to say, you just need to deal with this because this is never going to happen. And God's encouragement, he would always take me back to his word where I'd read, he wants all men to come to him. I remember one specific prayer that I would pray for Ray. It just, it jumped off the page to me. And it's in First Peter. And I would say, Lord, this is what I want for my husband. Although he does not know you now, 
He loves you. And though he has not seen you, but believes in you, he rejoices with great joy and great glory, obtaining as the outcome of this, the salvation of his soul. And so I would pray things like that. I would pray, take away his heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh. You can, there are so many places in the Bible where you can look at it and say, this is what I want for my loved one. I was a, I was not a choir boy. The meanness that I, that I was and caused in my first 70 years. And then uh, about two years ago, I decided, well, what, reckon why this is going, why am I doing this? And I, I, had, I had not given God or Christ credit for anything. And when our grandchildren were baptized, and we went to the service and I sat there and I listened and it was kind of all all made clear if you know if if Thomas's eyes were suddenly cleared my eyes were suddenly cleared at that point in time and I said well, Christ is the Lord Christ is my Savior thank you for being there and I'm here but he didn't tell me about it for a while. He was definitely a changed person. And so I kind of knew what had happened, but I kept asking him, Ray, are you in faith with Christ now? And he'd say, that's between me and God. And I thought, well, I respect that. You know, this is his journey. But from my perspective, it's something I have been praying for for over 50 years. And I could not wait to hear the words. And then one day we were sitting in the kitchen and uh, I don't know what the conversation was, but I remember saying, I, I just would give anything to know where you are in your faith walk. And he looked at me and said, where I am is I love Jesus. And I just want to glorify him with my life. <laughs> I've never heard sweeter words in my life um, to have wanted something passionately for 50 years and then see God be faithful and merciful and say, he's mine now. People often ask me, what's the secret to, to being married for 50 years? And I tell them, she's got patience. <laughs> she's waited 50 plus years for, for me to recognize Christ. and, and um, patience paid off and her patience paid off in me here's what I would say to somebody who is praying for someone that they love to come to faith in Christ you can totally trust him and he has shown me that so many times but none greater than the day he brought my husband to faith in him that that is the sweetest thing I've ever seen. Jesus is phenomenal. He, he's my savior. He's my Lord. He's my friend. He died for me, but he didn't stay in that grave. He rose on the third day and he defeated death. And one of these days, 
every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus Christ is, is salvation. He uh, gave himself up for all our sins and uh, proved, that, proved that he was God, God and rose again on the th third day. He's salvation. Oh, man, it's like, yes, thank you, Lord. Oh, give me just a minute. <laughs> no, no, you don't. Jesus is salvation. He proved he was God. Raymond, those words have haunted me all week in a beautiful way. Jesus is salvation. He proved he was God. God is relentless for our hearts. He wants to flip our ideas of who we think he is upside down to help us to see who he is, to know that he came because he loved. He came because he wanted to free us from our sins, to remove the guilt and shame and condemnation that haunts us, to help us understand why we do what we do and why we can't seem to break these habits, why we feel enslaved, Jesus is salvation. Praying faithfully for 50 years. Seeing God grab a heart. It's never too late. It's beautiful. Have you ever stopped to think for a moment? Why did anyone ever start believing about Jesus in the first place? Think about that. Why did anyone ever dare to write down this story in the first place? To even include the resurrection and say it was an historical event. Why did a whole group of people claim to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord go on the record and say that? Like, why were they even willing to die for it? And how did this start a movement that we call Christianity? It had to have been something significantly more than just a really good guy who said some really good things, who did some really nice things. In fact, it couldn't have even just been the fact that Jesus died. It had to have been the resurrection. Jesus is revealed as the son of God, because of the resurrection, Jesus is revealed and declared and set in stone forever as the Christ, the king of kings, that everything he said is true and trustworthy. That the cross and the resurrection was and is God's means of salvation, rescuing humanity from its bondage to sin and death. Jesus was raised for our justification, and through his death, the resurrection, we are united with him. We are married with him to becoming one, and we are raised to life with him that, as Paul says in Romans 6, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too 
my walk in the newness of life. Jesus had risen just as he said he would. He came to pay the penalty for our sins. Our sins which had an infinite eternal death sentence. He had to have satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday, he walked out of the grave free. Resurrection means paid in full, redeemed. This means we are forever with the bridegroom. He freed us and now he invites us into this relationship where we can have fullness of joy, fullness of life. But here's the thing. Some of you still think that religion is about things that you do. And some of you might have things in your life like Raymond where things have been said to you or done to you in the church that have forever clouded how you see it. Many people when asked, will you go to heaven? They answer, I think so. Well, how do you know? Because I'm a good person. Well, how do you know you're a good person? Because I do good things. Well, how much is good? I don't know. Is it not unsettling? Maybe. You want to think about it? Not really. It's an invitation to receive the gift that he's freely given you. And it's only through this invitation, this gift of grace, that we can experience the newness of life. Only one way to life. Only one way to perpetual joy. Only one way to the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's why I love 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He makes all things new. You see, this is where the connection to that parable comes into play here. I'm going to go all the way back to Luke 5. And Jesus does this odd little teaching. He goes, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new won't match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking the old desires new, for he says the old is good. What Jesus is offering and teaching here is something altogether different. It's a new thing. It's about new life. Resurrection is about a new creation. It's not compatible with the old. You can't just patch on Jesus to your old life. Jesus can't be a supplement to your lifestyle. He's not an accessory to match with your lifestyle. You can't do that. It's not compatible. You can't just put a little bit of Jesus in your old life. He says, you can't hold it. The old is gone, the new has come. And that's why I love what Brenda says, like Jesus asked me, you have, have you surrendered? And the answer is no, because she was still maybe trying to patch on Jesus to her life or try to pour Jesus into her old ways of life, but you can't do it. It's not about what you can do. It's not about if you measure up. You don't have to worry about those haunting thoughts if you're good enough, if you're worthy enough, if you've got to try to prove something. 
God forever settled that question by sending his son to die. I love you. You are worthy of my attention. And he did all of that so that he could bring you to himself. And when you receive that gift, he's like, listen, I'm going to give you myself, my fullness, my presence inside of you. And the old has to go. And I'm going to make you a new creation. And you're going to experience the new wine. The old ways of thinking about God are gone. The old ways of relating to God are gone. I got to be good enough. I got to try to prove to be good enough. I got to be worthy of love and affection. No more are the days of drowning in guilt and shame because of secrets in our lives or the fear of being found out and not measuring up. Gone are the days of heavy religious obligations of trying to show God that you are good enough. Gone are the days of losing the battle to temptation, of being enslaved to sin and death. Gone are the days of living out lies that we've been told from others. And yes, even the lies we have told ourselves. Sickness can be overcome. Guilt is removed. Shame is buried. All of it is left in the grave. You can't put on the newness of Jesus in the old life because the joy of the bridegroom is an ever-expanding joy. The more you get to know him, the more you want to rejoice, the more you see of him, the more you want to let go of the old and have more. It's an expanding joy. The new wine of life, of the resurrection life, cannot be restrained by the old and unyielding ways of thinking and behaving. Only new wineskins can hold the new wine. Only new creations in Jesus can hold and handle the ever-expanding, ever-swelling life and joy of Jesus. So here's what I want to say. Some of you are still trying to patch on Jesus. Like you want some of him, you want some of those things, but yet you also want all of these other old things. It can't work. It won't work. You know what it will lead to? Frustration, bitterness, resentment, guilt, shame, because you're going to find yourself wanting at every turn. And you'll eventually quit. You can't patch on Jesus. You got to put off the old and put on the new. So let today be the day of surrender. Look at the cross and realize how much he loves you, how much he has paid to redeem you. Look to the tomb. See that he's not there because he's alive and he wants you to know him, to worship him, to love him, and to live for him. And yes, there are some people, like Jesus said, that have tasted, they don't want to taste the new. They don't even want to try it. They would rather have their cheap box wine. No offense. I just think of my parents. They're like, I don't even want to try the new. I'm, I'm good with the old. I'm good with this. But here's my challenge to you if you don't even want to try it. I love the psalm that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
I love the fact that in the Easter story, Jesus left the grave clothes there. It's almost as a saying, hey, come and look. Come, come, look. See, not here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Today, it's never too late. Young or old, it's never too late. Today, Jesus still gives sinners an incredible offer, the presence of Christ, boundless joy, fullness of soul. And what's the condition? Realize that our old life is not compatible. It is not adequate and that accepting Jesus is everything. All of our hopes, all of our joy is found in Jesus. He died for us. He has made us his bride. He will be with us forever and that he is our only hope. Resurrection Sunday. He did exactly what he said he would do. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to praise you and thank you for your extreme goodness, Lord. You love so well. Lord, I want to pray for my friends here in this building and our friends online that maybe today they're feeling in their hearts the need to surrender, to put off the old and to receive the new. Maybe they're tired of wrestling with guilt and shame and trying so hard to be good and finding it wanting. Or maybe they've come in this morning with thoughts about you that aren't right and thoughts about Easter that aren't right and and now they understand. And if that is you, I want to encourage you in the silence of your heart, receive this gift by faith. The words don't matter. It's not a magical formula. He knows the heart. You can just confess God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I'm lost without you. I receive the forgiveness of sins and I believe that you are who you said you are. And if you are praying that prayer online or in this room, you are with Jesus forever and there is continual perpetual joy in your life forever. Maybe some of us in this room, we've maybe confused the purpose of church and following Jesus. Maybe we've got into the habits of trying to prove and earn and become religious, forgetting that all the while he wants us to be in a relationship. Lord, forgive us for thinking that things we bring to the table are gain. Lord, forgive us for being tempted to want to go back to the old. Forgive us for thinking that somehow, some way again, your grace is no longer sufficient and we have to earn it. 
Lord, forgive us when we're not joyful because we have forgotten such a great salvation. Thank you that you are not among the dead, but you are among the living. Thank you that you did exactly what you said. God, we praise you. Our words fall short. And even if we don't feel it right now, Lord, we're gonna give you a sacrifice of praise because we know that you're worthy of it. So God, would you minister in our hearts in this moment? In Christ's name.